you are listening to Taking Up Space. CFUV 101.9 FM's intersectional feminist podcast broadcasting from Victoria. We acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen and Senchothan-speaking peoples on whose traditional territory this podcast was produced, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. This next episode is part one in a two-parter that has been in the works for quite a while, and I am very excited to tell you about it. So back in the brainstorming period of season three of Taking Up Space around October, Coco Nielsen, the volunteer coordinator at CFUV, connected me with Chase Joint, a gender studies prof at UVic. With the intention of working with his Gender 200 class, which is popular culture and social media, to teach them about podcasting so that they could produce segments of their own. And that is exactly what happened. And I am so thrilled to be able to share their podcast with you, especially considering the fact that these episodes were created in the middle of a pandemic because school shut down, which I think is just incredible. Um, we're going to jump into it. The first podcast that we are about to listen to is from Kit, Brenna, Emily, and Natalie. The broad themes of this segment are class and labor, and they are exploring the relationship between social media and the workplace through a specific case study. They chose this topic because in their words, as young adults in the year 2020, social media plays a significant role in our personal lives and increasingly is becoming a part of our professional lives. I completely agree with that sentiment, and here is the product. Imagine you decide to take a break from work and go on Twitter. As you're scrolling, you happen to come across a tweet from a famous politician. You have some thoughts about what the politician is saying and decide to post a sort of parody of what they have said to Facebook. You think the people you know will find it funny. A couple days later, you're at work, and your boss calls you into her office. She's seen your post. She tells you it's offensive and inappropriate for you to post that. She tells you your employment has been terminated. How would this make you feel? Would this make you think about what you posted and how it might be considered offensive? Hi everyone, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Brenna. And I'm Kit. We're two undergraduate students at the University of Victoria. Nowadays, everyone is connected and everyone knows what you are doing. So today, we are asking the question, is firing employees for their offensive social media content an effective tool for accountability? This is a growing issue, and we feel it's one that needs more attention. Who is holding you accountable? Firing an employee will have different impacts when we consider the intersections of race, gender, and class. We define accountability as being held responsible for your decisions and actions. It also involves resolving situations in ways that are meaningful to all parties and being ready to explain your choices when asked. It's a fine balancing act. No one should feel threatened because of what they post on their own social media, having to censor themselves so as not to jeopardize their employment. On the other hand, no one should feel unsafe or attacked because of what others post online. The scenario that we described at the beginning of the podcast is similar to one which actually happened not long ago. Asheen Fanzi, former director of sustainability at Babson College, was fired on January 9, 2020, after a comment he posted on his Facebook page went viral. Fanzi's post was in response to President Donald Trump's tweet following the U.S. airstrike that killed General Qasem Soleimani in Iran. Trump tweeted that he had a list of 52 culturally significant sites in Iran that the United States could destroy at a moment's notice. Fanzi's response directly reacted to the president's statement. It read, In retaliation, Ayatollah Khomeini should tweet a list of 52 sites of beloved American cultural heritage that he could bomb. Um, Mall of America? Kardashian residence? We were curious to know what the public thought, so we went to the sub and asked the question, do you think it's justifiable to fire someone for something offensive they post online? Yeah, I think that you should be able, you should separate work life from uh, personal life and I mean, it's the kind of thing where I feel like it's you say it in theory that you should be able to do that, but in practicality, like it's it's a lot harder to uh, have. So you should definitely 
be aware of that and separate, uh, like take precautions to isolate your social media and stuff like that from the public. But ultimately, people are still going to make decisions off that. So I think people should just be aware of that. But I don't think I guess I don't think it's right. Um, yeah. I think there should be definitely should be a discussion between the employer and the employee, and I don't know maybe go over why they did it and what exactly it was about so yeah I would say context depends but I think it would definitely be valid to fire someone if it was pretty offensive and kind of goes against company, company policy and stuff like that they should be held accountable but not by their employer it should be by if, if it affects like their well-being and like the people around them publicly the government should take action onto that and the law should be taking action but the employer has nothing to do with that it's not their job like it just depends on what they're posting like if it's spreading hate then for sure and if it's like putting like discriminatory messages out there or like racist comments and stuff like that i think yeah because if they're representing that company it's definitely not okay even just in general it's not okay but say if it's like someone's just like posting like a random picture or like a meme that they thought was funny maybe not funny to other people right i don't necessarily think he was like offense definitely like maybe like a suspension or something I think while people do have a right to free speech they don't necessarily have a right to control people's reactions and like as an employer if I saw that I had an uh, employee that posted something that was like unsavory I would take that into consideration but in the end just I would judge them based on their character and if that reflected their character then yeah I'd say it'd be justifiable but for the most part yeah employers should sort of try and stay out of the personal lives of their employees in my opinion too i think it really depends what it is like if it's i think who usually if something's offensive somebody's being targeted by it right so i think it depends who's being targeted mm-hmm. um like especially minors you know um but I know there's been some cases over the last 20 years where people have been fired for what they said online against, you know, minority groups or a particular gender. And I don't know. I think it's complicated. Like, I think it, it in some ways it might depend where they work, um, what the values are of the workplace. But I, I think that it sends a pretty broad statement, like, because who else is going to censor what people are saying besides their work? So to to you know challenge what people are saying something has to be there so if it's going to be work then it's going to be work but then that puts an interesting um, responsibility on employers because then they have to be monitoring all the time what their employees are doing right they have to play big brother as well as manager and everything so i don't know i mean it kind of spreads out that responsibility quite a bit instead of there being one body but Maybe we don't want it centralized. The case of Ashing Fancy is unique for a couple reasons. His Facebook post was private. Four days after the initial post, someone circulated a screenshot of it on social media channels. Yet this detail did not seem to be factored into the decision to fire him. Judging from the responses that we got from the public, the circumstances surrounding what and how something is posted determines whether it is viewed as a justifiable firing. And there is research to support this. One study shows that people are less likely to support employee termination if a post is non-work related. They view firings over social media posts that are about the workplace, insulting one's boss, for example, as being more just. Another thing to consider about Fancy's story is the fact that some may view his posts as satire. In the West, America is valued, and the Middle East is not. When the Notre Dame de Paris burned down last year, millions of dollars in aid poured into having it rebuilt. This caused many to ask the question, what about other sacred sites? In places like Iraq and Syria, many of these places have been destroyed due to warfare and bombings. Where was the outcry then? The democratization of social media has ensured that more voices are challenging cultural hegemony. But when people like Fancy are deprived of their livelihood or have their life threatened, it's hard to say if these voices are always enough. Perhaps what is perceived as offensive has a lot more to do with what runs counter to the dominant narratives of Western culture. Identity will influence how the public responds to the content someone posts. In our example, the President of the United States tweeted about the destruction of cultural sites without facing any consequences. Fancy, a middle-class citizen of Indian-American descent, did not have such a luxury. Gender can play a role as well. 
Studies show women are often subject to more online harassment on Twitter than their male counterparts. And it's often worse for women of color. Loss of employment for anyone can be devastating, but the consequences are likely to vary depending on your job and socioeconomic class. For example, someone who is fired from McDonald's for posting something offensive is far more likely to be in a precarious financial position than someone who is fired from a well-paying job. Following up on our story of Ashin Fancy, after his employment was terminated, the college justified firing him by claiming his statement was not in line with their values and culture. In a public apology, Fancy stated that it was a humorous response. He had hoped his employer would support his freedom of expression. PEN America, a nonprofit organization, wrote a letter defending Fancy's right to free speech and had it signed by over 160 people, some of which were his work colleagues. In the days following, Fancy shut down his social media and took his kids out of school for fear over their safety. According to the Pew Research Center, online harassment can have, quote, profound real-world consequences ranging from mental or emotional distress to reputational damage, or even fear for one's personal safety. When society asks someone to be held accountable for their words and actions, we should also ask ourselves if these are the outcomes we desire. The next episode is from Rebecca, Eve, Lindy, and Noah. Their episode on decolonization explores the Wet'suwet'en solidarity movements and the history behind the protests. They take a deep dive into how social media was used as a tool to disrupt the media and the biases that exist within it. Here is their podcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to our podcast. A quick disclaimer before we dive in. Our original plan for this podcast was to conduct interviews with Indigenous youth activists on the front lines of the Wet'suwet'en and land vendors. However, as we progressed in this project, it was clear that taking activists away from the front lines as police aggression was growing more intense was not the best use of their time. This, combined with the current COVID-19 pandemic and social distancing measures, we have decided to take statements from Instagram and social media platforms and explore solidarity through their words while maintaining in both their safety and ours. All Instagram accounts referenced have been contacted for permission and credited accordingly. Thank you again. Please enjoy our podcast. Throughout this process, social media has had a significant influence on the portrayal of the Indigenous community and those in support of the Wet'suwet'en movement. Although each one of us determined that Instagram was a primary source of information, given the accounts we followed of our Indigenous peers who were at the heart of the movement, we ascertained that it was essential to engage with social media critically to determine that the direct source and how that influenced the content. Nikki Lays, a decolonial educator and TEDx official speaker, uses her platform on Instagram to inform her Indigenous community and those listening in BC. A direct quote from her Instagram during the movement states that, in response to escalating state violence being imposed upon the Wet'suwet'en in their own territory and the arrest of hereditary chief Ruse, the Indigenous youth have locked down at the Parliament buildings and have committed to remaining there until the government de-escalates the violence that's being enacted against our relatives. She states that the power of the people is stronger than the people in power. We saw that with our own eyes. We saw politicians who claim to serve their constituents cower and scurry through secret tunnels to avoid having to face the youth of the territories they swore to represent. Yes, at John Horgan 4BC, I'm talking to you. It would feel irresponsible to recognize the value of this podcast without simultaneously acknowledging that it was only made possible through the powers of direct action. Specifically, the immense amount of energy, care, and courage that took form in physical occupations on unceded Lekwungen territory by Indigenous youth from several nations. These youth stood in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en land and water protectors, as well as Indigenous communities fighting for sovereignty all over Turtle Island and across the world. It seems pertinent as well at this time to remind ourselves that direct action has always been a primary form of resistance, particularly among Indigenous communities whose oppression and disenfranchisement under colonialism leaves little room for other avenues of justice. Having said that, like many aspects of society, 
This type of resistance has been greatly influenced by the advent of the internet and social media, which together have drastically transformed the landscape of social organizing and have affected the ways in which direct actions can both be organized and witnessed. Using this podcast as an example, we can see the ways in which direct action both creates spaces for decolonial conversations and is itself generated out of the ability to have and to hold those conversations safely and successfully. For the youth occupying at the legislature, it was absolutely pertinent that they occupy physical space, but at the same time, the ability to communicate requests for support within minutes through social media and other platforms allowed for them to continue conversations with the general public while physically maintaining their presence at the legislature. As well, by creating an original post and utilizing the share options on Facebook and Instagram, the additional labor of continuing to relay that message was taken off the youth's shoulders, freeing them to focus on more important issues and safety concerns. Unfortunately, the true messaging of the youth and of the Wet'suwet'en Nation would unlikely have survived the editing and censorship of mainstream media. This has been evidenced by articles published recently and by direct call-outs by those youth occupying at the legislature, as well as other Indigenous protectors around the representations in mainstream media. Some of the misrepresentations by media included conflating Indigenous concepts of youth with colonial definitions of a legal adult, the misgendering and erasing of the identities of two-spirit individuals, as well as a failure to recognize the traditional matriarchal leadership systems and ceremonies that were being carried out. Direct calls for witnesses, non-Indigenous supporters, or resources would certainly not be communicable through such mediums. In this way, social media helped make possible a sustained occupation of the legislature. By being able to quickly and efficiently provide both power and numbers, as well as increase safety through the attendance of settlers and other witnesses, the youth were able to maintain their voice whilst concentrating on safety and their messaging. Police presence and the intensity of their actions was also directly linked to the number of supporters present, specifically non-Indigenous people. All of the arrests and most of the violence inflicted by authorities occurred during occupation times when there were fewer settlers to bear witness. In this way, it seems that social media tools in the context of Indigenous resistance and sovereignty movements have formed a mutually beneficial relationship with direct action, where both seem to hold each other up and allow for a diversified community of care that otherwise would be difficult to manifest, particularly among settlers immersed in an individualistic capitalist culture. With this in mind, it's no surprise then to learn, as mentioned in this podcast, that corporations seeking to infiltrate Indigenous territories for exploitive profit and other reasons seek to quell such online movements, using their wealth and power to intervene with the virality or the frequency of messaging on platforms such as Facebook or Instagram. Nikki and other people that utilize their Instagram platforms to spread correct information on this movement and specifically highlight the spread of misinformation by Vic PD and different news outlets. We must demonstrate how social media can be used for activism and opposition. We looked into the background of advertisements that were popping up on our Facebook timelines, promoting the pipeline or scrutinizing those involved in the blockades, presenting their actions as criminal. CBC News posted an article on March 4th based on the study they conducted, which required them to analyze 333 ads about the topic. This study concluded that oil and gas companies have been spending big on Facebook ads that denounce the First Nations-led protests that have targeted rail transport in Canada in the past month. This article reads, These groups, some of which position themselves as grassroots movements, have spent an estimated $110,000 since the start of the year on Facebook advertising either to promote the Coastal GasLink natural pipeline at the heart of the protests or to oppose the rail blockades as illegal. A CBC News analyst found that these ads were shown to Facebook users about 20 million times, whereas ads in support of the protests, mostly purchased by small activist groups, were viewed about 350,000 times by Facebook users. These groups collectively spent about $3,000 on the ads. 
This advertising is detrimental as those in power, who are also in administration with the pipeline, have control over what Facebook users frequently see. The Instagram account at Indigenous Youth for Wet'suwet'en created a post on February 20th to remind everyone to not believe Bill Blair's statement that the RCMP have actually left the Wet'suwet'en Yinta, as patrols continue to harass and arrest slash release supporters daily. A direct quote from this page states that, the media, the colonial state and the RCMP are owned by petro-corporate interests. Do not believe what you read in the headlines until it comes directly from UNITO10. Hashtag shame on the crown. Hashtag youth for Yenta, Hashtag shut down Canada. At Indigenous Youth for Wet'suwet'en also stated in a post regarding the arrest of two protesters for mischief for spraying a substance on the walls, driveways and sidewalks. Quote, Vic PD will use anything they can to criminalise land defenders. This framing is used to demonise Indigenous people while attempting to maintain and assert their supposed authority and control. There was no profanity in our messages. Speaking out against the violence of colonisation is simply deemed criminal. Please don't keep us safe. They uphold the violence of the settler colonial state. The fragility of this system is clear. Like Noah spoke about earlier in this podcast, the messages of the youth of the legislature and the Wet'suwet'en Nation would likely not have made it through the censorship of mainstream media. This is why social media is so critical. It tells stories that don't get through that censorship. This is the case for discussions of the gendered impacts of colonialism as well. One thing that didn't get much traction in mainstream news reporting is that it was matriarchs who were arrested and ripped from their lands when the RCMP invaded, and that they were arrested while they were holding ceremony for indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people who were missing or had been murdered. It's important to keep this at the forefront of any solidarity actions we undertake, because the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls found a link between resource extraction projects and an increased rate of violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. The so-called man camps that make these projects possible bring in mostly male workers that have no ties to the land, the people, or the community that they end up residing in. And when this happens, the rate of violence against Indigenous women, children, and two-spirit people increases. This was never discussed in mainstream media, but it was discussed on Instagram with poignant photos of red dresses, a symbol for missing and murdered indigenous women, that had been left discarded on the ground by coastal gas link workers. Uh, in this case, social media allowed for a visual and emotional reminder of what was at stake, and it allowed people around the world to educate themselves about this issue. End quote. A critical aspect to social media activism surrounding the Wet'suwet'en crisis has been the act of bearing witness. During the RCMP occupation of Wet'suwet'en territory, much of the violence occurred when few settlers were around to bear witness as to what the RCMP was doing. Media was also turned away during these raids, and violence towards land defenders went unreported in the colonized media. Instead, what was reported on was the protests and blockades in the solidarity with as Wet'suwet'en land defenders. As a result, many people were uninformed of the real causes as behind these blockades and resented the protests as an inconvenience. Land defenders on social media served to disrupt this message of quote-unquote inconvenience. For example, Indigenous Climate Action reposted an Edmonton Journal article announcing the Premier of Alberta proposed a new law to crack down on protesters but added a caption and saying demonizes every person that tries to like, raise legitimate concerns about climate. Doing this, they reinforced that the Wet'suwet'en and Solidarity Movement are not protesting for nothing. Also, in doing this, they exposed the media as flat-out ignoring the true purpose of these Solidarity Movements as a whole. Social media provides an accessible way to witness colonial violence occurring through live streams and updates from people on the ground. In an Indigenous Youth for Wet'suwet'en live stream of police arresting four Indigenous youth peacefully protesting by refusing to leave Scott Fraser's office, a Vic PD truck hit one of their youth with a police cruiser. To my knowledge, they were not injured. However, this was not reported on in the media, so I don't know about their well-being at the time. Only the arrests of these youth were reported in the media. It is this type of colonial violence that would regularly go unseen if there 
and we're not for this live stream is an update. After this event, the camp at the legislature was disbanded, but perhaps most importantly, social media helps helps emphasize that despite the disbanding of the legislature camp, decolonial work is not done. After the tech pipeline project was rejected, Indigenous Climate Action said in a statement, Though our reject tech campaign has been in excess, our work does not end here. We all, all must stand united for our future generations and in solidarity with communities like the Wet'suwet'en stopping coastal gas link pipeline, Coast Salish and, and Suwape opposing the TMX pipeline, Sipkin Katik and Mikamp, who are holding strong against Alton Gas, Grassy Narrows continuing to fight forestry and hydro, and countless other Indigenous communities threatened by extractive projects that undermine our rights and survival. By drawing attention to other Indigenous struggles against pipelines encroaching on their territory, this statement reminds us that Wet'suwet'en's struggle for solidarity is not an isolated cause. Colonialism is ultimately an ongoing process, and we must work constantly to undo it. It is a call to action for those seeking to educate themselves on Indigenous sovereignty and for Canada at large. Bearing witness to this violence is a first step. Okay, so as we wrap up this podcast, we want to encourage our listeners to reflect on what they've heard here and think about the role social media plays in their own lives, especially as a source for news. We also don't want listening to this podcast to be the end of your engagement with this issue. So with that in mind, our conclusion is more of a call to action. We want everyone to come away from this discussion with ideas of what can be done moving forward. Uh, first, Unistotin Camp has put together a Wet'suwet'en supporter toolkit. We'll provide a link to this with our transcript of the podcast. Some of the suggestions in this toolkit include holding a fundraiser to raise money for legal costs, hosting a film screening of the documentary Invasion, pressuring the government, and writing a letter to your local newspaper. Uh, in light of the uncertainty that the COVID-19 virus has brought, I'd like to say that all of these can be done from home while you're social distancing. Second, you can keep yourself educated. Follow the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook accounts of Indigenous youth and land defenders. If this podcast has taught you anything, it should be that we cannot rely on mainstream news organizations that are often funded by oil and gas companies. We've included a list of Instagram accounts to follow with our transcript. So that's all from us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you learned something and found it engaging. Next up, we have a podcast on the issues that arise from mommy bloggers from Miranda, Ella, Maya, Elizabeth, and Desi. Their episode aims to discuss the concept of mommy bloggers on Instagram and the glamorization of motherhood as well as the perpetuation of heterosexual, patriarchal gender norms. Good afternoon, guys. My name is Ella, and I'm sitting here with my good friend Elizabeth and Miranda. Yep. (laughs) Hello, I'm Elizabeth. Today we're going to be talking about mommy blogging as a branch of Instagram influencing. As many of you know, Instagram influencers have become a staple of current pop culture. And one of the branches of Instagram influencing are um, these so-called mommy blogs or Insta moms. So this refers to the Instagram accounts of mother influencers who share stories, photos, activities, and sponsor and advertise products on their Instagram pages. So today we are going to be answering the question of how can mommy blogs perpetuate heteropatriarchal gender norms and beauty standards as well as reinforce essentialist familial narratives. So we're going to do this by looking at four case study examples. The first two will be It's Lid Boss and Dikla Gorin and they will be contrasted by the accounts of Raising Zoomer and Remo Girl Family. So to begin our podcast we'd like to um, start by breaking down some of the terms that we're going to be using throughout our conversation. Miranda is here to help us understand some of the bigger terms we will be talking about. Hey, Miranda. Oh, hey, Ella. Miranda, could you start by defining heteropatriarchal gender norms? Yes, I am. We have made four men and women and nothing else for except for some people 
My favorite students that I really like to watch. My favorite one, watch wrestling. Yay! Because wrestling is seen as a main sport. I mean, but keep keep main my favorite part. Oh, nice to look at. But wrestling should be open to anyone. That's totally true. Next, could you tell us what essentialist family narrative means? That's a good question. <laughs> because uh, it doesn't know when we say our families, we met family or our mom who stay at home that will take care of the kids always. And a dad who works to respond for family. My papa, however, we know that where families can be very different. For example, there might be two more or one, one parent or even a grandparent. I think we are set to start talking about mommy evolving and social media. Like, do it. During her last pregnancy, Dee Glagorn posted some photos of her gender reveal party, which is a celebration during which parents, family, and friends find out and celebrate the sex of the baby. The post is full of gender stereotypes. A party featuring a pink or blue, which team do you choose theme, this clearly shows how parents impose gender roles and norms on their children before they are even born. Parents setting gender norms for their children as the celebration of either male or female sex suggests that there will be a certain expectation of what the child ought to be like and become in the future. Dee Gorin and her husband hold the words girl and boy in their hands while smiling. But what about gender identities that go beyond the female-male binary? Gender reveal parties exclude transgender, intersex, and gender non-conforming folks. Essentially, if you have a gender reveal party, you're making a great presumption about how your unborn child will identify. Let's consider the name gender reveal party. A sex reveal party sounds rather inappropriate, which is probably why the phrase isn't used. However, sex and gender are not interchangeable. Sex is determined upon fertilization, gender is socially constructed, covering both how individuals identify themselves in regard to maleness and femaleness and the space in between, and how they choose to present that identity. The gender reveal party of Deke Lagorin and many other future parents looks so innocent and fun, but they bring a lot of complications. Let's keep in mind that when babies are born, they do so without labels. Now, let's move on to the portrayal of the postpartum body. There's a huge stigma around post-pregnancy bodies. The portrayal of postpartum bodies on social media is often unrealistic and discouraging for many moms who don't have the time, energy, or ability to work on perfecting their bodies after birth. There are many photos in the account of It's Lid Boss in which she shows off her perfect flat and toned stomach after having given birth only a few weeks prior. In other posts, there are pictures of her promoting a protein shake called Women's Best, which supposedly gives you more energy to work out. She also promotes her own workout routine. While some moms do use their position as an Instagram influencer as a source of income by sponsoring and promoting certain products or their own brand, these posts can feel pressuring to new moms since they can end up believing that this is how they should look right after giving birth. This can lead to body dissatisfaction and negatively impact women's self-esteem. The post gives the viewers a reality which is not as attainable for everyone. This expectation for women to try their hardest after pregnancy to return back to their pre-pregnancy body is a reflection of the patriarchal beauty ideal that women must stay young looking and fit to be deemed attractive and worthy. And mommy blogs such as It's Lid Boss reinforced this damaging expectation. Now we will move on to discuss how mommy blogs reinforce essentialist views of womanhood and family. An essentialist view of womanhood asserts that a woman's primary task in life is to bear and nurture children. 
Essentialist thinking also reinforces the idea that the natural female sexuality is heterosexual. In many of its Boss posts, she reinforces the idea that women need men to support them in order for them to be successful mothers. In one of the pictures, which she's sitting and him having his hand on her baby lap, she praises her baby daddy and thanks him for all he has done, such as dealing with her mood swings and late night cravings. This photo can be seen as a reinforcing the idea that every woman needs a man by her side to help her through the emotional roller coasters and wild cravings of pregnancy. Not to mention the common misbelief that men don't need to be supported by the female partners at all. An Instagram account that pushes back against the gender norms we recently discussed is the account of Raising Zoomer, which was created by two parents who are raising their child, Zoomer, in a gender-creative way, as they call it. On their Instagram page, they share photos of their child without revealing the gender. Parents Brent and Kyle are not talking about their son or their daughter, but about their child. Through this method of parenting, they strive to raise their child in a stereotype-free home. Brent and Kyle are convinced that at a later age, Zoomer will decide for themselves whether they, as they speak to Zoomer, feel like a girl, boy, or otherwise. The photos on the Raising Zoomer page make clear that Zoomer's parents are very aware of the gender stereotypes and expectations that dominate our society. One of the photos depicts Father Brent with two children's books, one blue book which says stories for boys and one pink book which says stories for girls. The caption of the video tells us that right after they took the video, Brent chucked the books in the garbage. Another example of a mommy blog account that counters common norms and scripts surrounding gender and the family is the account of Rainbow Girl Family. This account was created by a family consisting of two moms who have two daughters. The biography on their page says, Girl Gang Family, Seven Miscarriages, Two Kids. By mentioning the seven miscarriages, they really create a more realistic view of pregnancy and parenthood for their viewers. They challenge the essentialist family narrative by showing that you don't need a male authority figure in your family in order to thrive. One of the family photos posted by Rainbow Girl Family portrays one of the mothers with their oldest daughter and a drag queen at the Bristol Pride. The caption offers us the dialogue that occurred that day. Are you a queen? asked the daughter. Oh yes, darling, through and through, answered the drag queen. By making the kids familiar with the LGBTQ scene, they create a narrative in which hegemonic masculinity, femininity, and heteronormativity does not exist. The account of Rainbow Girl family is also very open in sharing their difficulties with breastfeeding, such as posting pictures of one of the mother's split nipples. Because of accounts like Rainbow Girl Family, real moms can relate to their posts and their stories. This can really help them understand that they aren't doing anything wrong. And even further, that not everybody can or wants to bounce back to their pre-pregnancy bodies. They clearly send the message of, don't lose weight because society wants you to, but because of your mental health and well-being. So as you can see, there are various different approaches to mommy blogging, which reflects the different lifestyles people live and how they choose to portray them via social media. But the truth is, is that like most things, mommy blogging isn't black or white. It's not necessarily good or bad. Every mother who chooses to share her family's lifestyle or her journey with motherhood is valid. So while this podcast aimed to spur discussion around the way that some mommy blogs reinforce heteronormativity, hegemonic beauty standards, and essentialist familial narratives... We would also like to acknowledge that all mothers have every right to portray their family life in whichever way they wish. We hope that this podcast provided food for thought as to how these social media accounts can be read as scripts and reinforce discursive norms that are exclusionary to many. We encourage all of our listeners to be critical of all that they see on social media and think about who or what is being represented and idealized, and also who or what is being excluded or purposely hidden from the camera's viewpoint. Have a great day, people. The last podcast in part one comes from the group members Kate, Sakiko, Sarah, Rosemary, and Madison, who are tackling mental health and Bell Let's Talk Day. They discuss the controversies surrounding the campaign and look at the reality of mental health in today's world.
here it is. Mental health issues are impacting millions of Canadians, and we felt that corporate leadership and investment could really make a difference. Our annual Bell Let's Talk Day encourages all Canadians to join the conversation about mental health in order to raise awareness and reduce stigma. We have also made a strong commitment to lead by example in our own workplace, supporting the psychological health of the entire Bell team. That was Bernard Leduc, Chief Human Resources Officer and Executive VP of Bell, speaking about the importance of mental health to their company in a YouTube video. I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Sakiko. Hello, my name is Madison. I'm Rosemary. Hi, I'm Kate. Let's talk about Bell Let's Talk. On a surface level, the Bell Let's Talk campaign seems pretty impressive. It's a simple concept, a campaign aiming to help create a stigma-free Canada and drive action in mental health care, research, and the workplace. One day a year on Bell Let's Talk Day, every talk, text, on a Bell network, as well as use of the hashtag, hashtag Bell Let's Talk, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Snapchat counts towards a five-cent donation. Another area is in celebrity support and post-secondary initiatives, but the biggest part of the campaign focuses primarily around media and social media. The claims Bell makes about the results are notable. Over $108 million committed to mental health initiatives, $11 million in community fund grants, over $2 million crisis and distress line users, over 1,400,000 trained staff and volunteers, and a Bell-funded survey claiming that 86% of Canadians reported they are more aware of mental health issues. It's billed as a success story, both of corporations using their power to change and of social media to enact good in a wide-reaching multi-year program designed to break the silence around mental illness and support mental health all across Canada. But is that enough? The campaign has also drawn some controversy and issues, particularly from the mental health self-advocates and even their own employees. Let's take a look at some of the criticisms and more of what lies beneath the surface. When most people think about Bell Let's Talk campaign, they kind of consider it to be like a thoughtful effort to make strides towards mental health awareness. Um, however, since the campaign has taken off, many employees have stepped out to voice their concerns regarding how mental health among Bell employees is actually dealt with. The point of increased revenue and publicity due to the campaign has also been raised. Bell gets over 100 million interactions from their campaign and trends on Twitter in Canada every single year. Since Bell Let's Talk was founded in 2010, Bell's corporate profits have tripled to $3 billion per year and its stock price rose 37%. The campaign may also have been aided in Bell's merger with Astral Media in 2013. Again, while this campaign does raise money and awareness for mental health initiatives, it's time now to move past that and take action in our everyday lives and change the conversation around mental health. To quote an article from the TAI, I think we can safely assume that most of us are aware of mental illnesses at this point, and so it is time to shift the conversation to how to enact meaningful change. So now the question is, how do we make that change around us and make a conscious effort to help people who are being affected by mental health? Now let's talk about the experiences of Bell employees. While the Bell Let's Talk campaign is widely known and supported, often those working for the company itself do not feel that Bell is walking the talk. Often the issue is centered around sales targets and the stress experienced when not meeting, or when unsure if they will be met, these sales targets. Bell states that 2% of employees are currently on a mental health disability leave. While it is amazing that they have a leave specifically for mental health, it appears that had the company improved its way of managing stress and mental health in smaller, everyday ways, it would not be necessary for so many employees to take advantage of this option. In one documented situation where the woman actually filed a human rights complaint, the stress from the sales targets came because of discrimination due to disability. The company refused to alter sales targets despite the fact that the employee could not physically meet them. There are many reported cases of vomiting, diarrhea, vomiting blood, and exacerbated symptoms of anxiety and depression. And while the YouTube video we briefly mentioned earlier says that the people at head office are genuinely invested in the well-being of their employees, it does not appear to be translated down through the ranks, 
implying that while mental health is still a problem, it may be worsened by the underlying communication and management issues. So going back to the introductory video that we heard, the initiatives discussed are kind of about how employees can take mental health into their own hands and how they can improve things for themselves and coworkers. But what really needs to happen is management and higher ups being trained in how to properly handle situations and the stressful work environments change for the better. So why is the last point so important? Does it really reveal a larger issue? In an article that we found by The Star that discusses the campaign's whiteness and lack of intersectional perspective on the realities of mental health, had many other critiques. It stated that the campaign is an overly sanitized view of mental health and that this is harmful to many people with severe mental health disorders. These campaigns do make a lot of money, but little of it is actually put towards mental health initiatives in communities. Almost all of the models for these campaigns are also financially well-off white people who really appear to fit into the gender binary. This portrayal of people with mental health is far from intersectional, completely ignoring issues of gender, class, disability, and race, all of which can play into a person's experience with mental health. This non-intersectional analysis does not acknowledge the barriers to support that many folks, marginalized or otherwise, experience in day-to-day life. Through all of this, little discussion is made around how to approach these kinds of mental health conversations, and the fact that these conversations are even harder for men because they grow up being told that they should be tough and not show emotion. This narrative is harmful to people of all genders because it affects their ability to approach important topics like mental health with the attention it deserves. Sometimes simply being told to talk about it isn't enough. Overall, the campaign's overly sanitized view is doing more harm than it seems on the surface and it is hurting everyone, regardless of other factors. So just to continue on from what Rosemary and Madison said, the three main spokespeople for the Ballads Talk campaign, who are Clara Hughes, Howie Mandel, and Michael Landsberg, are all white, successful, cisgender people that appear to be straight due to their heterosexual marriages. This demographic is the most likely to be able to have access to mental health resources and less likely to suffer from mental illness. Besides this, there are other issues with the Bell Let's Talk campaign, mainly regarding intersectionality. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services of Minority Health, adult African Americans are 20% more likely to report serious psychological distress than white adults. Despite this, African Americans are less likely than white people to seek out treatment. As well, LGBTQ plus youth face approximately 14 times the risk of suicide and substance abuse than their heterosexual peers, and transgender youth in particular are at an even higher risk of suicide, at least 16 times the risk. On the Bell YouTube page, from the archives of the 2019 testimonies, only three out of nine people talked about mental illness other than depression and anxiety, in this case addiction and PTSD. When Bell talks about the idea of mental health, Their main focus is on depression and anxiety, not other mental illnesses that people struggle with, such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and so forth. Well, we don't want to in any way downplay the experiences of those with depression and anxiety. By doing this, Bell still manages to erase the people struggling with other mental illnesses by not acknowledging them. And in other times, they use people's labor on social media and as spokespeople in order to make Bell look forward-thinking and progressive, while ignoring some of the most vulnerable populations who have complex needs that they can't just be talked out of. Here we have some quotes around the variety in this campaign. The advertising around Bell Let's Talk includes very particular bodies. The subjects of these videos, pictures, and descriptions are primarily white and middle class. True, mental health does affect us all, but it affects some people and groups of people far more than others. Bipolar disorder is no less painful for sufferers and their loved ones who happen to be white and well-off than those who aren't. But if you don't have money and already have racial stigmas stacked against you, it's a whole lot harder to access effective help and a whole lot harder to get relief from your suffering. Some stats from the UK about mental health say that women are more likely to have been treated for a mental health problem than men. This is around 29% compared to 17% of men. One in four women will require treatment for depression at some point, compared to just one in 10 men. And around 60% of the people with phobias or obsessive-compulsive disorder are women. 
Roughly 1,200 respondents said that they had an alternate gender identity, meaning they do not identify with the gender that matches their birth sex. The researchers grouped these students, about 2% of the study's sample, which included transgender students, genderqueer students, and gender nonconforming students and others. Almost 80% of these gender minority students reported having at least one mental health issue compared to 45% of their cisgender peers, students whose gender aligns with their assigned birth sex. More than half of gender minority students, 58%, screened positive for depression, according to the study, and 53% of them reported having intentionally injured themselves in a way that was not suicidal. Less than 30% of cisgender students screened positive for depression, and 20% reported a non-suicidal self-injury. According to a study from the UK, a poll was taken of 21,000 American men by researchers at the National Center for Health Statistics. Nearly 1 in 10 men reported experiencing some form of depression or anxiety, but less than half sought treatment. As well, men die by suicide 3.5 times more often than women do. From Stats Canada, 10 to 20% of Canadian youth are affected by mental illness or disorder. By age 40, about 50% of the population will have or have had a mental illness. In any given year, one in five people in Canada personally experience a mental health problem or illness. It affects people of all ages, education, income levels, and cultures. There is no going back to mental health being a closed door, shameful, or taboo topic. But if we're going to be talking about these issues, we need to be having the real conversations. So some final thoughts and key takeaways. Social media conversations are great for reducing stigma around conversations about mental health, and when it's benefiting a charity, that's obviously a huge plus. But we need to do more than just talking about mental illness. In order to solve these problems, we need resources and to address inequality. We aren't going to get there from you know corporations dropping nickels in a bucket. We need to really take action in our everyday lives. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that this can give you something to think about Uh, next time you see Bell Let's Talk and maybe help you think about what you can do in your daily life to help bring more than just awareness to this very worthy topic. And that's it for this episode of Taking Up Space. Tune in for part two, where you get to hear the rest of the podcast from the class. This episode was made by me, Sarah Solomon, with help from Coco Nielsen, Chase Joint, and of course, the class of Gender 200.